of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So begins the most criticized, complex, confusing book, perhaps in all of the Bible, book of Ecclesiastes. It's that, that easy summer beet tree that everybody's been waiting for in 2019, right? The book that anyone who's anyone is sure to be reading sitting poolside here in Peachtree City or, or on the coast when you make your family vacation uh, happen in the coming months, right there with your stack of Nicholas Sparks novels and People magazines, whatever it is that, that you read in the category of mindless entertainment and literature. Um, this morning marks the beginning of a new sermon series, as you heard James say, um, one that my guess would be is sure to create just as many uh, questions as answers as we dive into the unseemingly uh, tameable waters of Ecclesiastes. My wife described this shirt categorically as a little bit goth, and so I thought, Ecclesiastes, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> my name's Jamie, by the way, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm uh, the pastor responsible most weeks for opening up the scriptures with God's people as we gather in this place. Thank you for bringing the church into this building. Uh, we're going to do that uh, in just a moment. We're going to dive into God's word together. But since we're starting a new series this morning, a little bit of preliminary work. Uh, Martin Luther describes the book of Ecclesiastes this way. He says, this book is one of the more difficult books in all of scripture, one which no one has ever completely mastered. That is devastating for a preacher, by the way, just so you know. Craig Bartholomew, academic philosopher and theologian, says Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you have understood the book, there is one waving about in the air. Many have, have asked the question, why in the world is this book even in the Bible? Why not 65 books rather than 66? In fact, um, J.R. Dumelo, a modern day scholar, says that Ecclesiastes is the low watermark of God-fearing Jews in pre-Christian times. The book itself includes what appears to be contradictory messages so that you have uh, the author describing wisdom as preserving life in chapter seven and wisdom failing to preserve life in chapter two. You have the author describing dying as better than living in chapter four and living better than dying in chapter nine. And, and not only does the book itself include what appears to be seemingly contradictory messages, but the author of Ecclesiastes appears to contradict other parts of scripture outside of his own writing so that the author of Ecclesiastes declares the wise to be no better than the fool, chapter two, verse 16, while Proverbs chapter three, verse 18 declares wisdom to be a tree of life that blesses those who lay hold of her. The author of Ecclesiastes declares that we should walk in the ways of our heart and the sight of our eyes while the Lord declares, Numbers chapter 15, that we shouldn't follow after our own heart or our own eyes. There's also the, the question of whether or not the author is crossing the line into an unhealthy pessimism, a skeptic and critic of God and his world. No outbursts of praise throughout the entire book. No prophetic words of hope, which begs the question, why, why study this book? Why? There, there's a lot to this book. Some passages are so complex that I bought 17 commentaries for this sermon series, and it's only 10 weeks long. Like, why not play it safe? Why dive into such a complex, challenging book of the Bible? Why, why venture into the seemingly untamable waters of Ecclesiastes? Why, why try to wrestle with the giant squid, to use that sea language? I, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a, a handful of reasons. Number one, it's honest. The, the book of Ecclesiastes captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world, perhaps better than any other book of the Bible. 
as the author uses literary devices meant to evoke emotions that we should be open to feeling this side of Eden. We, we've been so preconditioned to, to hide our greatest sadnesses, our greatest skepticisms, to just tuck them away, to hide them in the closet, to feel ashamed for every one of our tears, to leave our deepest questions at the front door. The author of Ecclesiastes won't have any of that. Herman Melville, uh, in his great work, Moby Dick, includes these words. He says, that mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true. Not true or, or else undeveloped, he says. With books, the same. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows, and the truest of all books is Solomon's, and Ecclesiastes is the fine-hammered steel of woe, he says. In a world that tells us to, to fake it till we make it, the book of Ecclesiastes is is kind of a breath of honest air. Secondly, it's course shaping. The book of Ecclesiastes has the power to change the very trajectory of our lives, to help us see the, the futility of, of, of a life lived in the pursuit of meaning apart from God, so that we might know the joy of a life shot through with meaning when lived for God's glory. We get to, to learn from the mistakes of another, so that we might not make those very same mistakes ourselves. Number three, it's apologetic, meaning that it, it presents some of the most challenging questions of human existence. Why are, we, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why does happiness seem to always be just out of reach? What are we to do with all the pain and injustice in the world around us? Philip Ryken in his commentary says, it's a book for skeptics and agnostics, for people on a quest to know the meaning of life, for people who are open to God but are not sure whether they can trust the Bible, if Ecclesiastes serves as a backdoor for believers who sometimes have their doubts, it also serves as the gateway for some people to enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, which is why for some people it turns out to be one of the most important books they ever read. So that if you're not a Christian, my prayer is that the book of Ecclesiastes would soon become a part of the story of how you met Jesus. Number four, it's doxological meaning that it helps us to worship the true God as we grow in knowledge of his character, nature, and being, as we grow in an understanding of, of ourselves and the world in which we live. It reveals to us our desperate need to, to abandon illusions of, of self-importance and the air of pride and to fall at the feet of our generous and gracious God with trembling trust. And then lastly, it's practical teaching us how to, to view and approach things that are part of everyday living, things like money, things like fame, things like work, relationships, even death. Leland Riken in his commentary says, Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on an acquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. And in that regard, it's a book that's, that's both timeless and timely, you might say. And so for those reasons, among many others, I, I say, let, let's wrestle with the giant squid. Let's see what God might do over the course of the next couple months as we dive into this book of the Bible. If you, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes, obviously chapter one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage if you came in not possessing a Bible or with a translation that's difficult to track with, please take 
one of our Bibles home with you as our gift to you. Let me pray. We're going to need it. See what God will do. Lord, we're desperate for you this morning. This book of the Bible is so incredibly complex. It will likely stir up just as many questions as answers for many of us. This I envision more than any series that we've done thus far, more than any book of the Bible that we've walked through, could very well be the one in which the assembly of your people disagree with the one preaching your word more than they ever have. Because there's so many ways to look at this book, to see this book, to understand this book. There's an elusiveness to it in that sense. And yet, ultimately, this book leads us to see the one and same hope and unity together in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that as a result of our time in this series, that we would be pressed in terms of the bounds of our thinking, that we would wrestle with questions that we might not otherwise wrestle with, that we would come face to face with things that perhaps we're even scared to come face to face with, that we want to busy ourselves just enough to not have to think about. And God, that ultimately as a result of that, that, that there would be a, a greater clarity of thought and understanding of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus and the implications for everyday living as it pertains to the outworking of our faith. God, would you move, would you work mightily? Thank you for such an honest book. Thank you for the opportunity to grapple with it as your people gathered together so that we might see something more of your goodness, your glory, and your grace in the face of Christ Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen. You heard me mention it before, the book of Ecclesiastes begins with these words. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. One of the first questions right out of the gate, who is the preacher? The, The book of Ecclesiastes is anonymous, right? There's no proper name listed. No proper name attached to the writing. Traditional Christian scholars believe Solomon to be the author for a number of reasons. Uh, one, Solomon was certainly the king, or, or excuse me, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, secondly, the author of Ecclesiastes describes himself as having been king of Israel in Jerusalem. And we know that after Solomon's reign, the kingdom was divided so that Israel and Jerusalem were not one and the same anymore. Thirdly, the author of Ecclesiastes describes himself to possess an unrivaled wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. That matches the the language of 1 Kings chapter 3, where we're told that God gave Solomon a wise and discerning mind like none before him and none who would follow after him. Fourthly, the author of Ecclesiastes uh, speaks of an incredibly prosperous reign and wealth of possessions. You see some of that language in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where he says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. That matches the language of 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11, where we're told of Solomon's great wealth and his many concubines. 
Number five, we're told that the author of Ecclesiastes arranged many proverbs with great care. If you look ahead to chapter 12, verse 9, which would line up really well with Solomon's authorship of the book of Proverbs. And so for those reasons, many say, yeah, it was Solomon. But there are just as many arguments against Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes. Number one, the name Solomon is not used in the book, which distinguishes it from the book of Proverbs and the book of Song of Solomon. Those books begin with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, or the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. You don't, you don't get that language here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Secondly, the phrase son of David could refer to any descendant of King David, not just Solomon. Thirdly, the Hebrew language used in the book indicates uh, a, a much later date than Solomon's lifetime. And then fourthly, the author's statements in the book of Ecclesiastes don't seem to line up well with Solomon's day and age. The language of many preceding him as king in Jerusalem. We know that there weren't many kings before Solomon in Jerusalem, though he could perhaps mean non-Israelite kings. He describes a culture of oppression and injustice, which doesn't seem to be uh, the reality of Solomon's prosperous kingdom, if you read in the Old Testament. He talks about his observance of the foolishness of kings and their abuse of power. There's this, this question of if Solomon sees these things and he's writing these things, why doesn't he do something about it? The most powerful man of the kingdom could certainly engage these things. He has the means, the wealth, and the wisdom to do so. And so the conclusion is that we, we can't be sure. Even the most conservative of scholars are divided on the matter. Could be Solomon, could be someone later in Israel's history identifying with Solomon in order to make a point. The implication being that, that if a king can't find meaning and purpose, who can? What we can be sure of is that Solomon's life is presented as the historical backdrop of the book. And so throughout this series, you'll, you'll hear me refer to the author as simply the author of Ecclesiastes. But with the understanding that the life lived and evidenced in these pages is that of, of King Solomon. One more thing before we move on to verse two to point out here in verse one. That word translated preacher in many of our uh, translations, maybe some of you it says teacher or gatherer, collector. It's the Hebrew word koheleth. It's a word that, that really means assembler, as in students or listeners, or it can mean like a collector as in wisdom sayings. Some, some scholars, and I'm inclined to agree with them, they, they consider the translation preacher to be lacking based on the fact that Ecclesiastes, apart from the rest of the Bible, doesn't exactly preach. That perhaps the better image would be that of maybe a philosophy professor gathering his students for a few lessons on the meaning of life. And, and here's the fascinating thing. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is really a book of questions, not answers. It's the Socratic method at its finest, you might say. The author presenting the reader with questions ultimately meant to scrutinize his or her commonly held beliefs. Tim Keller says it this way in his assessment of this book of the Bible. He says, Ecclesiastes is not the place we find answers. It's in the rest of the Bible that we find answers. This man's job, the author, is to push you to the logical conclusion of your position. This man's job is to lay bare the foundations of your life to push you to the boundaries of your thought, to say, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? And if you believe that, do you see what that leads to? Do you see what that leads to? To push you, he says, because he knows that none of us have got the spiritual or intellectual guts to really look and ask the question, why? 
Why? Why? About everything we do and everything we believe. In that regard, each and every one of us who engage this series together should walk away a more honest version of ourselves, I think, having deeply wrestled with some of the most challenging questions of human existence, the very same questions that philosophers have grappled with for ages. Or or to say it with maybe a little bit more of a Christian spin, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to help clarify what we should be asking the rest of Scripture so that we might see and experience the meaning and joy of a life lived in glad submission to the triune God of the Bible. Verse 2, he goes on to say, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word translated vanity is the Hebrew word hebel. It's used more than 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and repetition is a big deal in this book of the Bible. We'll see it as we dive in. That word literally means vapor or mist. It's like a breath on a cold day disappearing in a moment or smoke rising up from a fire and disappearing into the sky. It's a word with a number of possible meanings used as a a means to communicate several things pertaining to, to human existence. This idea that on the one hand, life is momentary. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. James 4.14 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But it also can mean futility, life is futile, a chasing after the wind, never ultimately and truly satisfying. But then there's this other angle on it. It can mean elusive. When we try to grasp it, it slips through our fingers. It's mysterious and incomprehensible. I'll be honest with you, I struggled in preparing for this sermon series, and I found myself really wanting to narrow the lens to get as black and white and concrete as I possibly could to come to conclusions as to what this word surely means and what this phrase surely means in this book and and to grapple with the, the, the specifics of just how pessimistic the author meant to be versus how optimistic and to, to get some sort of wrangling on this book of the Bible so that Thursday I thought I had gotten there, very narrowed. And this is after weeks and weeks and weeks of study. And I felt really good about it until a few hours later I didn't. And I had no peace of mind. And I carried that into Friday and into half the day Saturday. And, and I didn't have peace ultimately about us coming together this morning until later yesterday afternoon when I did this, when I relinquished my grip and acknowledged that part of the, the beauty of God as an, as an author is that he's communicating the very message through the, the backdrop and, and through the, the various angles of thinking about this book of the Bible, meaning that the book itself is elusive. It's communicating an elusiveness, a difficulty of grasping human existence, Doesn't it make perfect sense that that would be a book that you would struggle to know who the author truly is or when it was actually written or what under the sun means as a phrase or vanity, that it would be a book where those words and phrases could have a number of possible meanings, that that this would be the book where you wouldn't have all of the categories of things like death and pleasure and wisdom and, and wealth all categorically brought together, but they would be scattered like puzzle pieces everywhere and you would struggle to bring it together. That communicates the very essence of Ecclesiastes. It's actually brilliant literature is what it is. And so I had to stop and acknowledge that yesterday and go, no, I gotta broaden myself back out and and bring all of the possible angles of this before God's people as we gather and let you do with it what you will. As a way of 
Coming back to verse two, saying that everything is as meaningless as it possibly could be. Notice that the author uses the superlative vanity of vanities. It's, it's kind of like when you see in the Bible, holy of holies. It's the most holy place in, in God's temple and, and tabernacle, right? Or king of kings, lord of lords. The author's gonna take the better part of the next 12 chapters to make this very point, to make sense of what he means by vanity of vanities. And, and it will not come without its sting, just so you know, if you jump ahead to chapter 12, these words are described as goads, those very um, mechanisms used to prod oxen to keep them on the path. They're meant to, to prick us in some sense. Listen to the, the list of things attached to the word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, according to one commentator that I read. Every effort is vanity. Any fruit of our labors is vanity, says the author of Ecclesiastes. Pleasure is vanity. Life is vanity. Youth is vanity. Success is vanity. Wealth is vanity. Desire is vanity. Frivolity is vanity. Popularity is vanity. Injustice is, in va is vanity. All future events is vanity. And in, and in case you didn't get the, 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 the comprehensive list, he gives you the junk drawer term of everything is vanity. Like when the author of Ecclesiastes says all is vanity, he means all. He, he comes after all of the things that human beings tend to grab hold of for a sense of meaning and satisfaction in life. And he declares with respect to each and every one of them, vanity. And it's not an, an abstract whiteboarding perspective on life. He's obtained everything and tried everything himself. He speaks from experience. He says, you think money will bring you meaning? I possess more of it than you ever will, and I say vanity. You think pleasure will bring you lasting satisfaction? I've tasted more of it than you ever will, and I say vanity. You, you think knowledge and power will give you purpose? I've known more wisdom and power than you'll ever know, and I say vanity. It, it's, like, it's like arguing with the Apostle Paul what it means to be Hebrew, or a Pharisee, or zealous for the law, or a persecutor of the church. Like, it's hard to, to push back on the professor regarding matters of human experience when the professor has you outlived in practically every category, right? And, and now, having said that, the professor presents us with a question, the first of many questions in this book of the Bible. Verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All right, let me, let me go ahead and give away the end from the beginning so that we don't all walk away depressed and downtrodden this morning. There, there's a little phrase in verse three that has everything to do with unlocking the meaning of this book of the Bible. And it's that phrase, under the sun. It's a phrase that, again, to come back to that literary device of repetition, it's used nearly 30 times throughout the book. And it's just as complex in its various meanings as the word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes so that it can mean life as we know it in a fallen world. Things are not as they should be. Going back to Genesis chapter three, by the sweat of our brow, we toil. Work is not easy. To dust we will return because in this world, no one escapes death. We'll see that kind of language in this book. It can also, under the sun, mean a view of the world absent of God, a, a this-is-all-there-is outlook, nothing above the sun, you might say. In the words of, of the late John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky, imagine all the people living for today. The author of Ecclesiastes says, let's try that on for size and let's see where that actually leads us. 
Under the sun can also mean a belief in God, but one that falls short of the, the covenant triune Lord of scripture. So that many commentators have tried to find something hopeful in this book. When you get to the end, it says the, the, the end of the matter is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. And so many scholars have said, yes, like there's something hopeful. But the problem with that is that not only is keeping God's commandments perfectly impossible, can't do it, which leads to the cross of Jesus Christ in the first place, but also fearing God in the book of Ecclesiastes is not the same as the fear of the Lord in other parts of the Bible. When you see fear of the Lord outside of Ecclesiastes, Lord is, is translated Yahweh, the covenant intimate, relational God of scripture. But here in Ecclesiastes, it's Elohim. It's this general creator God language. It's the same thing you see in the book of Genesis as the Bible begins to unfold. Genesis 1, this cosmic level look on creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, so forth and so on. God in Genesis 1 is only Elohim. It's only when you get to Genesis 2 and things zoom in on the garden with God and his first image bearers that you see the word Yahweh, this covenant Lord in intimate relationship with his people. The book of Ecclesiastes, the author never uses the word Yahweh, even when he says to fear God. And so it's this generalized fear of a creator God, but not an intimate fear of the Lord like other parts of scripture talk about. Under the sun can also mean a, a right confessional belief in the triune covenant Lord of scripture, and yet a functional living for the glory and kingdom of self. That there's, there's application for those of us with a right confessional system of belief, coming in here, believing all of the things necessary to be a Christian, but who wake up day in and day out and still live as though functionally this is all there is. Living for the now, building our own kingdom, seeking meaning and, and validation and satisfaction in things apart from God. And then lastly, under the sun can mean simply a limited perspective on life compared to, to God's omniscient, all-knowing view of the world. The frustration of wanting all the answers, yet knowing that all-knowingness is an attribute that is reserved for God alone, that none of us get that divine attribute. See, all, this, all these various ways of contemplating life under the sun as we work our way through the book. Coming back to verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That, that, that kind of question, what does man gain that's a question we'll see over and over again throughout the book. It's another way of saying, what's the return on investment? What, what, what does it profit a person? The author of Ecclesiastes is not looking for an answer. It's rhetorical, right? The, the under the sun answer is nothing. Apart from God, people gain absolutely nothing from their toil. If this is all there is, he says, vanity. If this isn't all there is, and yet we functionally live as though this is all there is, that's vanity too. He goes on to make his point in verses four through seven, making the argument from nature. He says this, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Sun comes up, sun goes down. Comes up again, goes down again. Up and down it goes, never progressing anywhere, he says. In the, in the words of the great theologian Pink Floyd, so you, you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. 
The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older. Shorter of breath and one day closer to death. The wind is no different. Round and round it goes, blowing in circles without any sort of true destination. And then there are the streams that run to the sea. The, the Dead Sea in Israel is surrounded by land. It's, it's more like a lake. And yet, over the course of thousands of years, the Jordan River has never managed to fill up the Dead Sea. Streams just keep flowing, working to a seemingly pointless end. Everything in the world operates in these sort of cycles that make it seem as though nothing has any true purpose as though we're running in circles without any sort of true progress or sense of direction. The sink will fill up with dishes again, won't it? The grass will inevitably need to be mowed a week from now. Your email inbox can only remain empty for so long. Life under the sun is a wearisome thing to think about, which is why he goes on to say in verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the, the ear filled with hearing. Notice that he he parallels the sun, the wind, and the sea with the weariness of speech, sight, and sound. He says it's hard to put into words the weariness of life under the sun. None of us can fully and comprehensively explain it with our lips or control it. With the eye, it gets its fill, but it's never fully satisfied. There's the next website to be clicked on, the next social media post to be read, the next Netflix special in the queue, Same thing with the ear. There's the next podcast to listen to, the next band to be heard, the next album from the same band. All the sights and sounds of human existence, yet man is never truly satisfied. What are we we accomplishing? Is there any real return on investment is what he's asking. Verses nine through 11, he goes on to say, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, he's saying generations will come and generations will go, just like the sun, wind, and streams. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing ever changes. There's always the next thing to be grasped. When you're a kid, the next thing is freedom. When you're a college student, the next thing is a career. When you're a young professional, the next thing is a spouse. When you're married, the next thing is children. When you have kids, it's a bigger car, bigger house, saving for your kids' college now, 401K. Enjoy doing what everyone before you has done. Mountains and seas will outlive you, he says, and they won't care that you came and went. I mean, think about this. Most of us know very little about even our own great-great-grandparents, right? We, we maybe know more about today's celebrities than our own lineage, who themselves will be forgotten soon enough. In the words of one commentator, today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries. Most of the population of human history, he says, has been or will be forgotten, and that probably includes you and me. We will very soon be part of the former things mentioned in verse 11, that For those who punch a time card each and every day, someday some company will throw you a retirement party and the very next day they'll replace you with someone else. What do you do with that? Some resort to escapism to deal with the despair of it all. Anything that will distract from the unpleasant realities of life under the sun. Others resort to nihilism, refusing to believe there's any purpose or meaning to anything. 
Others resort to hedonism. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Escapism, nihilism, hedonism, just a few of the the coping mechanisms that uh, the many who have come face to face with the questions of Ecclesiastes resort to. He says, under the sun, viewing and or living life apart from God, all is vanity. The idea that we can become self-made men and women, it's an absolute exercise in futility. T.M. Moore in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says, although Solomon intends his readers to understand that life under the sun is a gift from God and should be received and enjoyed as such, he is at pains to show us that life looked at from that perspective alone never quite seems to make sense. The phrase under the sun repeatedly punctuates the futility and meaninglessness of life lived only for self and the moment without gratitude to or regard for God and his ways. You see what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing? He's the the consummate romantic rationalist. What do I mean by that? There's a reason that C.S. Lewis is beloved by by so many. On the one hand, Lewis was a, a rationalist, a man of brilliant logic and reason, exposing the errors of the shoddy thinking of his day and, and even able to look ahead to some of the errors that were to come. On the other hand, Lewis was a romantic, not in the lovey-dovey sense of the word, but rather meaning that his logic didn't kill his imagination. He had an imaginative way of seeing the world, an ability to show beauty and meaning, so that the same rationalist who wrote Mere Christianity is the romantic who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And, And here's the incredible thing. Mere Christianity isn't just filled with logic and reason, but imaginative illustrations. And the Chronicles of Narnia isn't just filled with beauty and wonder, but razor sharp logic. With with Lewis, you get this incredibly compelling both and. And the same is true with the book of Ecclesiastes. The the author of Ecclesiastes shows us how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God, driving us to the romantic rationalism of the Christian worldview, life above the sun. If under the sun is all there is, all is meaningless. It's irrational, think about this, it's irrational to say that there is no God, that we're just a random clumping of cells, that we're all on a trajectory toward annihilation and at the same time work for anything meaningful. How does that make any sense? To care about human rights, to to try to save the ozone or a tree or a whale. It's, it's useless. It doesn't matter. The planet is going to dissolve just like every other planet anyway. So you preserved it for a few more years. It comes and goes, says the author of Ecclesiastes. There is no true meaning or beauty if this isn't a story, but rather an accident. You could even go so far as to say it this way. Every hug is nothing more than the embrace of two random clumps of cells. Laughter, it's not something God wrote into the story as a fundamental ingredient of human experience, but rather something chemical with absolutely no meaning or purpose to it whatsoever. That the author of Ecclesiastes is giving us the most logical, rational conclusion if life under the sun is all there is. And it's incredibly unromantic, is it not? And that goes for those of us who confess that there there is a God above the sun, every time we functionally live as though this is all there is, clawing after meaning and significance apart from him. Here's the good news. 
if you've been longing for it now for some time this morning, with God, the world is incredibly romantic and rational. With God, everything not only comes together in terms of logic and reason, a making sense of the world as we know it, but it comes together in the framework of a beautiful story that God is writing. One of my old professors, John Frame, once said, instead of a gray world of matter and motion and chance in which anything can happen, but nothing much ever does, the world is an artistic creation of the greatest mind imaginable with a dazzling beauty and fascinating logic. It is a history with a drama, a human interest, a profound subtlety and elusiveness more illuminating than the greatest novelist could produce. That divine history has a moral grandeur that turns all the world's evil to good. The author of Ecclesiastes isn't just directing us upward above the sun, but also outward beyond the pages of the book to find our answers. It's the story of scripture altogether that tells us that we were created for wisdom, for pleasure, for work, for relationships. All the things that the author talks about in this book, the many themes traced throughout it. It's the story of scripture that tells us that everything came unraveled in the wake of the sin of our first parents that the world isn't as it should be, that meaning and beauty and life and hope have been threatened. It's the story of scripture that tells us of one who's come to save us from the meaninglessness and the hopelessness, and his name is Jesus. And it's the story of scripture that tells us that he, Jesus, will one day return to fully satisfy us forever. Douglas Sean O'Donnell in his commentary, I'll probably quote him a lot because I like his name. He says this, he says, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the vanity that Pastor Solomon so wrestled with and suffered under by subjecting himself to our temporary, meaningless, futile, incomprehensible, incongruous, absurd, smoke curling up into the air, mere breath, vain life. He was born under the sun. He toiled under the sun. He suffered under the sun. He died under the sun. But in his subjection, Uh, To the curse of death by his own death on the cross, this son of God redeemed us from the curse, Galatians 3. By his resurrection, he restored meaning to our toil, and by his return, he will exact every injustice and elucidate every absurdity as he ushers those who fear the Lord into the glorious presence of our all-wise, never-completely-comprehensible God. That's a mouthful of glory. Like the, The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus does a work for, in, and through us that will never be forgotten. That those of us who are in Christ will spend eternity praising Jesus for what he's done for us, that what he's doing in us and sanctifying us will lead to eternal glorification, and what he's doing through us as ministers of the gospel will impact eternity. It's when we lift our eyes above the sun and fix them on God that we find true meaning and satisfaction. And that's in all things big or small. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, to come back to him again, says, In order to know and enjoy God properly, we first have to see the emptiness of life without him, becoming thoroughly disillusioned with everything the world has to offer. To this end, Ecclesiastes gives us a true assessment of what life is like apart from the grace of God. This makes it a hopeful book, not a depressing one. Ultimately, its worldview is positive, not negative. Like a good pastor, Koheleth shows us the absolute vanity of life without God so that we finally stop expecting earthly things to give us lasting satisfaction and learn to live for God rather than for ourselves. 
In describing his own experience of preaching Ecclesiastes, John Wesley once wrote, Never before had I so clear a sight either of its meaning or beauties. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected together, all tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness out of God. That Ecclesiastes is not a book declaring that nothing matters. It's a book declaring that nothing matters without God and that with God, everything matters. To quote Tim Keller one last time, he says this, when you live for yourself, you lose yourself. And when you live for the now, you lose the now. But when you live for Christ, you find yourself. And when you live for eternity, you get the now. A now, he says, shot through with glory. If you live for life under the sun, you'll lose life. If you live as though life under the sun is just part of a universe shot through with the glory of God, you will find your meaning. You will find yourself. You'll find that everything in this world has meaning and purpose. You'll be able to to sit down with a glass of orange juice and drink it and acknowledge that God gave you taste buds and it's not just a weird chemical thing with cells that have been lumped together to form a thing called a tongue, but it has purpose. Everything matters, big and small. Sitting down with someone at a coffee shop and striking up a conversation could very well be the first of many conversations that carry into eternity for years and years and years, never ending. I would say this, In closing this morning, and hear me, this is just an attempt to frame this thing. I expect you to walk out with so many questions and to come back and to wrestle again next week. But this morning, if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is that you would see the the wondrous story that you're caught up in. It's not irrational and unromantic. It's beautiful. It's a story being written by the greatest romantic rationalist the world has ever known, the one who reigns above the sun. I pray that you would see yourself as a character in that great story, separated from the only one who can give you true meaning and joy. I pray that you would see the author having entered in and become a character in his very own story to live the perfect life that none of us could live so that he might offer himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice on behalf of sinners, triumphing over sin and death through his resurrection, that you would put your trust in the the only one who can rescue you from the curse of a life apart from God. And for the rest of us, I pray that that this series would take us to places that maybe we haven't been comfortable going up to this point in our lives, that it would take us to the end of ourselves, that, that we would wrestle with the inconsistencies and in, in what we profess to believe and the way we roll out of bed each day functionally, that we would see those inconsistencies, that it would lead to confession and repentance, that we would turn from seeking to find meaning and joy apart from God, reminded that ultimate meaning and joy is found in Him, that we would fix our eyes all the more above the sun, that we would bask in the wonder of this glorious and gracious God who invites us to meaningfully participate in a universe shot through with his glory.